Hello, good people. So nice to be back with you. Today, I am not going to be talking about Joseph Ratzinger. Instead, I'm going to be talking about something that several people asked me to comment on. In the Discord server, there have been some terrific discussions among women and about women and about the issues of women's lives, careers, homemaking, uh, motherhood, all of those things that are such fraught conversations well have been for you know several generations and so today i want to share with you some thoughts on that topic what i want to do is read to you a passage from a book that had a great deal of effect on me many years ago when i was a young mother and helping me to have a vision of the role of a woman in the home and how that fit into the wider context of the economy of the entire world, of the country, and um, just the huge effects that it has. However, I'm actually not gonna read you that passage right now in this video, because before I read it to you, I want to introduce to you the book that the passage is taken from and i want to give some historical context and some thoughts about how that context has changed in the years since the book is written so what is this mysterious book i am talking about it is this book it is called laurel's kitchen a handbook for vegetarian cookery now, you're probably wondering, what is she gonna do, read a bunch of recipes to us? No, 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 I'm not going to do that because it's not the recipes that were the thing that really impacted me when I read this passage. It is something that is in the beginning of the book before the recipes start. And it has to do with the thoughts of one of the authors about the role of women and it's fascinating in particular because of the historical time frame in which the book was written now this was written in 1978 and it was written in berkeley california now if i say 1978 berkeley california and you know anything about history of the united states you know that that was like the epicenter of the student revolt anti-war movement that was going on i want you to remember it's easy to look back on these people and say man there was sure some bunch of nutty hippiness going on with those people but i want you to remember that this is a generation that grew up first of all first generation in the world that grew up under the threat of nuclear war very oppressive um situation in thinking about nuclear war you know having school drills where you're supposed to get under your desk and you know duck your head down and supposedly that was going to help you survive if there was a a nuclear war with russia or something so this generation grew up with that the other thing that they grew up with was seeing the vietnam war on television all of the time um, this was the first war that was really televised right into the living rooms of Americans every night for years. Another thing that was going on that was very frightening from a global perspective was starvation. 
there were huge famines with many starving people in different parts of the earth. It seemed like every year there was a new famine. There were famines in India, Africa, various parts of Asia. It was horrific. You could, you know, the television cameras would go there and they would just film these people, these babies that were nothing but sticks and um, swollen bellies and, you know, the mothers trying to save their babies and everything. It was, it was just awful. So these were the kinds of things that were going on in the world that were, um, that were weighing on the minds of these young people during these student uh, revolt that was going on, what's called the student revolt. Lots of protests and a desire to see a change in society. Now, the women who wrote this book were friends in Berkeley, California, and they had been brought together in a spiritual context. One of the things that was going on at this time was a lot of interest in Eastern religions was beginning. So you had some teachers from, especially from India, that came over to the United States and they would gather a group of disciples around them and begin teaching them. Well, in this case, there was a Hindu teacher who had come over to California from India, and he began to teach this little group of women, mostly women, but also there, some of them had husbands and their husbands too, to teach them meditation and yoga and, um, and the spiritual ways of his Eastern religion and philosophy. Now, I have to mention one other thing that's going to connect up with this, and that is that because of the starvation that was going on and the sense that we would have trouble feeding the population of the world, a woman named Frances Moore LaPay had written a book called Diet for a Small Planet. And in that book, she had uh, proposed that one of the ways that we could feed people around the world would be to stop eating meat. That if we stopped eating meat, we could take the land that we were devoting to feeding animals and use that land to feed human beings. So the idea was that while you might be able to support, say, one cow on an acre of land, you could grow on that acre of land enough food to feed, say for a year, to feed several families or several people. So the idea was that you could make a more efficient use of land if you would stop eating meat. Now that should sound very familiar to you because people are still saying that today. Well, this connected up with what these followers of this Hindu teacher were learning because their Hindu teacher was advising them that to make better spiritual progress in their religious pursuit, that they should try going vegetarian. Now, this led these women, some of whom were quite well educated at Berkeley, at the University of California, Berkeley, um, including in some fields like nursing and nutrition and stuff to ask a very sensible question. And that is, if we stop eating meat, how are we going to get enough protein in our diets? And so 
one thing that Francis Moore Lappe had hit upon was using combinations of grains and legumes, grains and peas or beans, to supply enough protein in the proper ratios for a human being to survive. And this book, Laurel's Kitchen, was designed to take this same nutritional approach with a lot of scientific rigor. Uh, very, there are very detailed nutritional charts in the book and apply it to recipes in such a way that a woman who wanted to feed her family uh, vegetarian meals or go completely vegetarian would know how to put together the proper balance of nutrients within that meal or within that diet for her family so that her children would get enough protein. This leads to the question of how I ended up getting the book. Well, at the time, I was interested in this question of nutrition. I was a young mother and I was interested in vegetarianism. I was interested in this movement to stop eating meat because for one thing, I thought that Francis Moore Lappe was correct, that eating meat was wasting the resources of the planet. And I also thought that it would be healthier to go to a more plant-based diet and I wanted to know how to balance the nutrients for myself and for my family. When I got the book, I found something else in this book besides the vegetarian information. I found a vision of what the role of a woman in a home and in a household was that was quite startling to me, it was quite new to me, and it really affected me for many years. In fact, I got this book probably around 1978 or shortly after it was published. And then in subsequent years, at some point with moving around and everything, I lost my copy of this book, but I never forgot that interesting thing that I had read in it, and one day, maybe about 10 or 15 years ago, I happened to find the book in a Goodwill store and I was quite excited to see it. I opened it up right away to see if that section was in there and it was because it was not published in subsequent editions of the book, only in this edition. And in fact, if you wanted to get the same hardcover edition of this book that I have right here, the first one on Amazon, it's nearly $200. So very interesting. Now, the name of the portion of the book that has the section that I want to read to you is in the second chapter, which is called The Keeper of the Keys. And interestingly enough, when I was looking on Amazon today to see what the current price was of the book, I found out that there's a paperback edition of the book with, that was printed accidentally with an upside down cover. It's available for $5. And in that paperback edition, um, where you read the reviews of it, somebody said in there that they got the book and every year they read that chapter and they think everybody should read it. I'm not going to read it in this video, but in the next one. But what I want to talk to you is the way some of my thinking evolved from this from the first time that I read it. Okay. 
So first of all, one of the things that happened, of course, is that I became a Christian and I became a Catholic. And so my ideas about femininity, about the role of women, have now been shaped by the Christian faith, as well as the words that I read in this book, which are really just kind of what you would call ancient or traditional wisdom. Also, I want to tell you that I am not a vegetarian. Um, over the years since I was um, involved in vegetarianism and trying to be vegetarian, which I never got to 100% vegetarian, but very close for a number of years. Dur in the years subsequent to that, I have come to realize a number of things about vegetarianism that that really put the lie to the original thesis that Francis Moore Lappe had about the use of land. So I don't want to get into debates on this channel about diet. That is not the point of what I am saying. What I am going to say next has to do with the question of whether it is true that not eating animal products or not eating meat will help to save the planet or save it <clears throat> from environmental degradation. So let me address that with you just briefly. Now, first of all, we have to make a distinction between vegetarianism and veganism. So veganism is not eating any animal products at all, exclusively eating plants. That means that the human being is then deprived of animal fats and animal protein completely. I do not believe that that is a healthy long-term strategy for any human being and most especially for women who are going to be bearing and nursing children. Um, if you want to know more about why that is not a good idea, look up the work of the Weston Price Foundation. I don't want to get into arguments about that. I'm just telling you how my own thinking had evolved. And I want to make a distinction between vegetarianism and veganism. So the difference is that vegetarians, most people who are vegetarian, do consume some animal products. Usually it's what are called ovo lacto vegetarians, which means that along with their vegetable products, beans and grains and vegetables, they also eat eggs and products made from milk. Products made from milk include cheese, kefir, yogurt, milk itself, sour cream, um, cream, all these different things that can be made from milk and butter. Okay, so that would be an ovo-lacto-vegetarian. They eat the eggs and they eat products made from milk and they combine that with their um, vegetables, grains, um, and things like that. And that gives them the complete protein complement that the human body needs. Unlike veganism, a human person can be very healthy on a vegetarian diet like that, although they will need some supplementation particularly I think it's in B12, which I'm not sure is in eggs or milk, but I know is in meat. Now, 
Other than that, you can get all of your nutritional needs met from an ovo-lacto-vegetarian diet. The question is, does that save animals? Because usually when people take on that kind of diet, they're wanting to not kill animals. So the question is, would that kind of diet save animals? Would a vegan diet save animals? Okay, because most people, if they go to vegan where they're having no animal products at all, really think that they're going to keep animals from being killed because they're not eating them. All right, here is the pertinent question. The pertinent question is, if you're going to veganism, not eating any animal products, does that mean that you're not killing any animals? And I'm not getting into the whole thing of, you know, plowing up fields of little rabbits and birds to, um, <laughs> to plant the vegetables. That's not where I'm going with this. The question is, how is the fertility being returned to the soil? Because the plants are not just going to grow and grow and grow and continue to grow out of the soil, taking the nutrition out of the soil without that fertility and nutrients being returned to the soil. How do you want your nutrition returned to the soil if you're eating a vegan diet? How do you want your nutrition returned to the soil so that your plants have nutritive value for your own body? They're going to have to be fertilized somehow. What kind of fertilization do you want? Do you want to use um, artificial fertilization? Do you want to use petroleum products for the fertilization? Or do you think that maybe animal manures would be a good organic fertilizer that has been used for thousands and thousands of years by human beings to fertilize their crops? Well, probably if you're interested in eating naturally, you think that animal manures are good fertilizers. That's right. Okay. So if you're not eating any animal products at all, where is the animal manure coming from? Do you think somebody is supposed to keep and feed livestock just to collect the manure so that it can go on your vegetables? Well, that's kind of a ridiculous idea, isn't it? You see that you're, you're taking out of the system that nature has created an entire structure in order to extract this one thing, those vegetables that you want, and you're not even thinking about how they are going to be fertilized. Not to mention how they're gonna be transported. The average, the average American plate, the average object on an American plate comes from like 2,000 miles away. For goodness sakes, that's burning all kinds of fossil fuels, isn't it? Okay, so that's the veganism. Now, let's talk a minute about the vegetarianism, the ovo-lacto-vegetarian. So if you're an ovo-lacto-vegetarian, so you're going to eat only eggs and milk products, and you know that when the chicken lays an egg, it doesn't die. When the cow gives milk, it doesn't die. So you figure, well, if I eat eggs and milk, I am not killing any animals. Let's think this through for a minute, okay? So, you know, a chicken will lay eggs for 
about a year and a half to two years, and then the egg laying really tapers off and becomes, the chicken becomes pretty non-productive or very low productive. Um, what's gonna happen to that chicken? That chicken could naturally live, I don't know, 10, 12, maybe 15 years if somebody just kept feeding it and kept it safe from predators. Can you imagine how many chickens, if we never killed them, would be running around because their egg laying productive years are over and now they're just old hens in retirement? <laughs> what? Where are they going to be kept? What is going to be happening with them? Um, you know, where is their food going to come from? I mean, it's, that has to be grown somewhere. So you can see that that doesn't make any sense. And then what about the other end of the process? So let's say we have these chickens and you're eating their eggs because you're an ovo-lacto-vegetarian. You're eating the chicken eggs, and um, which is good because you really need those fats and proteins from those eggs, especially if you're not eating any meat. The eggs are very good for you. So you're eating those eggs. And now the old hens have stopped laying the eggs and are no longer, it's no longer reasonable to, to keep them, to keep feeding them because their production of eggs has gone way down. And now they have to be replaced. Well, where do their replacements come from? Well, guess what? They come from eggs. They come from other eggs that hens sit on or that are put in, um, in an incubator and they're hatched. And you know what? It's not all hens that come out of those eggs. Half of those eggs are gonna hatch out baby boy chickens. Those are called cockerels. So what happens to the cockerels? I'll tell you what happens to them. Most of them are ground up and fed to pigs. Now, so for you to eat eggs at all, some chickens are still dying. Don't think that just because the hen keeps stays alive after she lays the egg, that no animals are dying. That's a that's a you know that's living in a fantasy land. Maybe you say, well, you know, let's let's let the little baby cockerels let them grow up like we were letting the hens grow up. And then what? Then we have, I don't know what, millions of roosters running around. What are we supposed to do for them? Now, one thing that we can do with those cockerels is just grow them up till they're around nine to twelve weeks old and then butcher them and eat them. We could do that. And that way, the, um, that way that nutrition is restored to human beings. Or they could be used for animal feed, for like dogs, dog food or something. But the idea that no animals are going to die in this scenario is, is just not reality. Let's talk for a minute about the milk. Um, so let's say you're an ovo-lacto-vegetarian and you're going to eat butter, and I hope you do eat butter. I hope you eat good grass-fed butter, especially if you're not eating any meat. You really need those good fats that are in that butter, very healthy for your body. So you're eating butter that's made from milk. Maybe you're eating milk. Maybe you're eating yogurt, or maybe you're making your own yogurt. I make kefir which is a product similar to yogurt made from grass-fed milk. So maybe you're, you're consuming these things, which are very good for you. And especially if you are a woman of childbearing age, especially if you're trying to be vegetarian, 
please make sure you're getting that butter and those eggs and that that um, cream and, and those good and cheeses and those good healthy full fat milk products. Your body needs that to produce your hormones and for you to have healthy babies. Well, do you think no animals are dying? Well, let me just explain the facts of life to you on the cows, all right? Because the way that a cow gives milk is because she has had a baby, she has had a calf. And then she's going to, she can give milk for, I think it's like up to two years after she has one calf. The calf is only gonna need that milk for a few months, even if the calf stays on the, on the, um, on the cow, which some people who have small farms do let their calves stay on the mother for, for a while. But that calf will be weaned, but because of the milking continuously of the cow, the cow can continue to give milk then for humans for quite some time, but at some point she's going to stop and she's going to have to be bred again and have another calf in order to keep giving milk. All right. Once again, half of those calves are going to be males. They cannot be used for milking. They're going to grow up to become bulls. They're either going to become bulls or they're going to be castrated so that they become steers or oxen. Or what is going to happen to them? Are we supposed to be overrun with millions of bulls? No. You see, some use needs to be made of those animals in order to, once again, remember, we want the manure from these animals to be able to use on, on the land. And so it makes sense that those animals should be eaten by human beings because they are otherwise they're going to waste. What are you going to, what would you suggest to be done with them? You see, one of the things that people don't understand, and there's a good reason we don't understand it, it's because we don't practice it. Only 3% of the um, cattle in the United States are completely grass-fed for their whole life. Most of them start off for a brief number of months on some grass and then are moved to feedlots where they're fed things that they were never supposed to eat, corn and soybeans. And they're, that's used to fatten them up and then get them ready for slaughter. And the conditions in those feedlots are horrible. The animals are crowded. They have to be fed antibiotics because, um, because they're being fed something that, that their digestive system is not even made to take in and so they're susceptible to infections. It's, I don't, I fully understand why anybody would look at that and go, I don't wanna eat meat because I can't stand what these cattle are being put through. And I'm 100% with you. I'm just sickened by these um, feedlot operations and the way that the animals are treated. But there's an alternative, support the, Farmers and ranchers who are supplying grass-fed, 100% grass-fed meat or bison meat so that, um, so that the market for their products will go up and they can make a living and we can put a dent in this, these feedlot operations. However, what I want you to understand here is that, you, is that we have lost our grasp that people used to have for many generations of the role of the herbivore on the grass. 
So let me just talk to you about that for a minute. All right, herbivores, the grass eaters, especially the cattle that are ruminants, that means that they chew the cud, they chew some of their food, it goes into their first stomach, they have four stomachs. By the time it gets to their fourth stomach, that stomach is almost completely full of bacteria from the fermentation process going on in their stomachs of the grass that they are eating. That's why they can eat grass and we can't. We can't eat grass because we don't have a long enough digestive system and we don't have a fermentation system that the cows eat. So by the way, just to point this out, that means that meat is a fermented food product. <laughs> anyway, the, what happens is in nature, in the natural setting, even without the human interference, what cattle do is they eat grass at the stage where the grass is grown up but has not yet set its seeds. So the, they come along and they chew the grass, not all the way down to the ground, but they chomp it off kind of about this far from the ground and they get that tender grass that's growing up on the top. What the grass does, because it wants to set seeds, is it immediately begins to grow again and it sends its roots down deeper into the ground so that it can grow and it can produce the seeds. And this may happen several times over the course of a growing season. The grass gets cut by the animal, by the animal, um, by the herbivore eating it, and then it regrows until it finally gets to the stage where it's able to actually set its seed. And the whole time that it's doing that, it's growing deeper roots. And when it's growing deeper roots, guess what it's doing? It's taking carbon out of the air and putting it into the ground, which is exactly what we want to have happening. Now in a natural setting, the cattle are moved. They're not allowed to overgraze. They're moved. And I'm talking about without human interference. How are they moved? They're moved by the predators. So predation upon the herd forces the herd to move from one grassland pasture to the next so that they do not overgraze and they eat the grass at the right stage so that they force the grass to grow deeper roots. See what an incredibly wonderful system that is? So when we manage cattle in a natural way, what we would do is we would put the cattle on the grass when it's at that stage, and then we would move the cattle off, allow the grass to regrow, allow it to send those roots in, take carbon out of the air and put it into the ground, and then keep moving the cattle through the pastures. That is the proper way, the natural way, and a way that is environmentally sound to deal with cattle, to, to um, do something both good for the environment and good for the human beings. Now, you might be thinking, well, how do we get the manure? So the manure, of course, is gonna fall onto those grasslands where the cattle are eating and then their hooves are like little plows and just sort of plow it in. So what really smart 
farmers do is they have a paddock or they have a, um, a pasture and they'll leave the cow, cattle in there for a few days to eat that grass. Then they'll move to a new paddock. And then what happens is the manure from the animal sits on the pasture and they can do one of two things. They can plant crops in that pasture land if they want to. They can till in and plant their own crops and make use of that fertility that the cows have dropped. Or they can run chickens in there and let the chickens eat all the bug larvae and stuff that's now in those cow patties that are on that field. And the chickens will then scratch it with their feet and they will fertilize that pasture. So that way the grass stays very nutritional for the cattle. And then when we eat the grass-fed beef, we get that nutrition. Or when we um, perhaps hit the butter or the cheese or something that's made from the milk of, that, of those cows. So you see, it's a system that really is natural, is good for the environment, and is good for us. So if you understand the role of the herbivore in the natural environment, you will perhaps be a little more sanguine about the idea of eating meat and realize that you're not helping the environment and you're not saving animals just by not eating meat. Anyway, when I come back next time, what I want to do is read you this piece from this book that so affected me years ago when I was a young mother and never has left my mind, has always been kind of a touchstone for understanding the role of women in the home and in society. And I hope that you will enjoy that. Until we are together again, treat yourself as though you are someone you are responsible for helping because you are responsible and so am I, and together we are making the world. Thanks so much for watching.